Hello, and welcome to episode 164 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Robert Randolph. This week, Christian Romney talks to Will Bird about why did you come to Japan, the reason schemer, Conj, and more. Sit back and open your ears, your heart, and your mind to Christian and Will on episode 164 of the Cognicast. All right, so welcome everybody to the Cognicast. And uh, today's guest is Will Bird. Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Will, I assume most listeners of the podcast will know who you are. You should probably need very little introduction, but on the off chance that we're, you know, speaking to some folks that don't know who you are, give us a brief introduction. Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, it's kind of weird to assume that anyone would know who I am in the closure community, given that I don't really do closure, but I, I've certainly hung out with lots and lots of closure friends. So I, I don't know what I do. I, I guess I, I'm a computer scientist and I have traditionally done work and research in programming languages, programming language design and implementation. I've worked for many years, something like 17 years now, on a logic or constraint logic programming language called Minicanron is like a domain-specific language for relational or, or logic or constraint logic programming. And that that work, along with you know, my colleagues, Dan Friedman and Oleg Kislyov, when we were doing that work many years ago, that's the work that really led me to the Clojure community because David Nolan basically took, took our book, The Reason Schemer, and also my dissertation and used that to create a library called core.logic which at least for a while was fairly popular. And there was a, a company that was running uh, closures core.logic on a cluster, which I never thought would happen. And all the analysts apparently were handed copies of the recent steamer. <laughs> and so, so Dan, so I got an email, a very nice email from David, and he asked me for some code for my, for my dissertation. And then he mentioned that there's this thing called closure conj coming up. And I, th I think it was the second conj and that he was going to be talking about core logic, I think. And so I went to the website and I also saw there was this guy, Ambrose <laughs> Von Air Sargent, who was also going to be giving a talk uh, on, on core logic or mini Kenrin. And I was like, wow, okay. Uh, at this time, I had you know sort of just finished up my dissertation after six years. And there was not a lot of enthusiasm <laughs> for Mini Canon <laughs> at the time, let's say. And so, you know, I'm like, well, do I even continue with this? You know, no one seems to care. So, so the idea that, you know, people were, were reading the book and reading my dissertation and using it as the basis for implementation and that people were giving talks for it at a conference in a Lisp community, you know, to me, that was super exciting. And so I said, okay, I want to go to this. And I got one of the last tickets. And then I finally convinced Dan. Dan became interested. Dan Friedman wanted to come. And then we're out of tickets. I'm like, uh-oh. And then I, I contacted, I, th I think it may have been Stu. I forget who, who I talked to. But they're like, okay, it's okay. We'll find a ticket for Dan. <laughs> and when we showed up, we were... We were both shocked because we were like celebrities, right? And, yeah. You know, I, I was like, I wasn't even an outcast in academia. I was just like a nothing. Right? <laughs> you, know, you know, when people people would see what I did, especially you know, logic programmers, prolog people, they'd be like, "Why?" <laughs> you know, that was that was the only question. Like, why would you do that? You know, we've been doing prolog for forty years. Why would you waste your time on this little thing? So uh, they just didn't get it. I mean, it's you know, it's like the old. The old quote it was Marshall McLuhan who said, I'm not sure who invented water, the concept of water, but I'm sure it wasn't a fish, right? <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, like, I think the prologue people were just like too close to that problem to think about it in a somewhat different way, which was what many, many Kenrin ended up being about, which was about this relational approach, trying to be as relational as possible instead of trying to be a sort of an efficient, I don't know, I guess efficient slash convenient way to express programs that were inspired by or based on first order logic, which is what Prolog is in my mind. So so anyway, it was really great to see people at Closure Conj interested in, and got to meet people. And 
I remember at one point I couldn't, I wanted to go up to my my room in the hotel where Flosher Conch was, right? During a break. And I couldn't go because like people were following me in the elevator to ask for my signature and photos. And stuff. I was like, what is this? This is not, that was not, I was like a Z-list celebrity, you know, for yeah. a minute. And, and that, that I'm like, okay, I better not get this, let this get to my head. But what it did do is give me a jolt of, of sort, of, sort of adrenaline and, and a confidence boost, which I really needed, that people would actually found this interesting. And a lot of the people were using it more like as a hobby type thing, just exploring the ideas, and they found it fun. And and really, that's why I got a PhD. I never wanted to be like a professor or something, although I sort of briefly, <laughs> I briefly played with that idea. But, but the main <laughs> thing was I just like wanted to explore interesting ideas and come up with new things. And so, you know, that was what motivated me. And you know, I, I don't know if it's good career advice, but that's what I care about. So the fact that there are other people who also found it interesting was super, super exciting. And then I became friends with a bunch of closure people in the closure community. So I, I, I consider myself an honorary closurian, even though I don't really use closure. Oh, definitely. Well, maybe, maybe you could scratch that last part in, in editing. We'll get, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, but definitely that is, that is kind of a whirlwind intro. So yes, you are, and sort of before I get to my my next question, I just can't resist the segue here. In terms of minor celebrity, I hear that you're also a minor celebrity in Japan. <laughs> That's true. So, well, am, am I supposed to say something about art? So, oh yeah, so yeah. So yeah. this might this might uh, this, tie this in can nicely. tie this can tie in. So 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 what was the prompt that was to say something the, about art? The, Right. Just share an experience of art. Mm-hmm. Okay. So share an experience of art. Okay. So this, this will tie in. And so this is combining culinary arts with performance mm. art. <laughs> I guess the way it well was done. Uh, and so this immediately came to mind. This is like a two-part saga. Okay. So I first went to Japan for ICFP, for a conference, International Conference on Functional Programming in NARA which is the old, old capital, one of the old capitals of Japan before they moved to Kyoto. And Nara is famous for these deer that, they're they're wild deer, but they're semi-domesticated and they'll come up and bow to tourists for cracker and stuff. Anyway, it's a really amazing city. And so so I went to a conference there and and Japan like shocked me because I traveled a fair amount in Asia before going to Japan. I kind of thought for some reason between watching movies and anime and traveling in Asia, like I would kind of have a feel for it, but it wasn't like that at all. And and I, I the, the level of culture shock was greater than anything I've experienced. And so I went back to Japan again for a research conference and went back a few times and each time my level of culture shock sort of increased to the point where my, my third trip you know, by the end, I, I, I almost couldn't take it because I didn't really understand what I was seeing. And so I went back home and I, and I just bought every book I could on the culture of Japan. And I decided to learn Japanese. I read this giant stack of books and, you know, started watching anime. I'm like, I, I need to process what I'm seeing because it doesn't make sense in my worldview. And so I spent a lot of time trying to learn Japan. And then, you know, I kept going back. And, and over time, I started understanding more and I found it very interesting. And then my fifth trip, now part of, okay, my fifth trip to set the context, I told you I briefly (laughs) flirted with being a professor and let's just say that wasn't working out very well for me (laughs) emotionally. And and I was going to have to teach a Java class. I'm not a big Java fan. And uh, I wasn't looking forward to it, even though actually the Java class, I had, had some good experiences that came out of the Java class. And so, so it certainly wasn't all bad. But I, I, at the time, I was dreading teaching this Java class, right? And I'm like, hey, I do Scheme and Lisp and logic programming. I don't really want to be teaching Java. So I was kind of playing hooky. Okay, so I had the semester <laughs> off before I taught Java. And and I was going to, to meet a, a collaborator in Tokyo and, and this collaborator. And maybe I'll talk about that later. But, but anyway, for now, the collaborator will remain unnamed to protect the innocent. Uh, I mean, nothing bad from the collaborator's standpoint. But but anyway, so so I, I was super excited to go to Japan because I kind of, I was excited anyway. And also it was sort of a, a little vacation from everything else going on in 
Professor Lamb. And so I arrive at Narita Airport and I'm I'm just like super hyped. You know, you know what I mean? You're you're <laughs> just been like so excited. And so I go through customs, come out of customs. I'm waiting to get my pocket Wi-Fi and all that. So, you know, just standing there, you know, texting my parents saying I've arrived and all that, you know, I'm getting ready. But I've got a big grin on my face and just kind of got the energy of someone who's like ready to go, right? off, Right off the plane, I'm ready for my adventure to begin. I've got two weeks and two weeks only and I'm going to make every second count. And I'm wearing a shirt for my favorite ramen place, Kyushu Jangara Ramen in Akihabara, which is like the otaku geek district you know like it's the anime manga district of tokyo there's actually more than one but it's like sort of the main one and uh, and so th- this place has vegan ramen i'm vegetarian it has amazing amazing ramen i love it so much and i thought okay i'm, I'm gonna wear my favorite shirt that i got there and i got it on a lark because i i found this place you know sort of completely by accident this tiny little restaurant that only seats i don't know maybe eight people Maybe 10. If The first time I sat there, I had to sit literally in the corner facing the corner because they didn't have the other seats. Okay. There's this tiny little place, but there was a giant line in the rain to get in. I was like, okay, that's a good sign. So I waited 40 minutes in the rain and got in and I had this vegetarian ramen is the best. I I think it's the best meal I've, I've ever had in my life for anything. I was just blown away. And so just before I left, I asked, well, you have t-shirts. Can I buy one? So I bought a t-shirt for like $20, just as a lark. I, I almost didn't ask because, you know, <laughs> my Japanese is not good and and it's raining and people were waiting in the rain. This guy had to run out in the rain to get it. I sort of kind of felt bad, but I thought, okay, well, I got this awesome t-shirt. And so I was wearing that t-shirt when I walked out of customs. And of course, I was going to go back to this place. And a minute later, a Japanese film crew walks up to me. This guy's like, hey, I'm from TV Tokyo. I'm from Japanese TV, TV Tokyo. Uh, Can I interview you? And I'm like, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, here we go. I've I've watched Japanese game shows and reality shows. Like at this point, I'm like, yep, let's do it. I don't know what you're going to have me do, but I don't care what it is. I'll do it. (laughs) And later, that, that director told me, the second I saw you, I knew you were the one. <laughs> I must have just had like this aura. Anyway, so he so asked, why are you? <laughs> he is like, why are you here in Japan? Why did you come to Japan? That's the name of the show, by the way. Right. It's a oh, really? Show. Yeah. The name of the show is why? Why did you come to Japan? And and basically just interviewing people. Why did they come to Japan and what their adventures are? Right. And of course, I was there for research, but I wasn't going to say that. No. Yeah, that, because I, yeah, <laughs> go ahead, sir. What no? Will dreams of ramen? Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because because I was wearing that ramen shirt, like it immediately occurred. I didn't have to think about it. It was just like automatic. I just said, I expect and demand the very best Kyushu style ramen, but not in Kyushu and Akihabara, right? And I, you know, had this theatrical pose and, and the director just like cracked up. And, and it, it, you know, we ended up with this adventure where I took the film crew to Akihabara and took them to the, the ramen place, which I'd been to a few times on a previous trip. But of course, you know, the other times, like the, the ramen people, they, they didn't know it was. I, I was just like another customer, right? But this time I was there with the Japanese TV film crew. You, so. you brought your <laughs> own film crew. I brought yeah. my own film crew. And so <laughs> I got to meet the the owner of, of the place. And that, that was really fun. And we had this great segment. And, and then so then I ended up on Japanese TV. That, that was just before COVID. Just wow. before COVID. So, so in February 2020, it aired finally. And within an hour of it airing, I got an email from a nice Japanese uh, lady asking if I was married. Uh, And (laughs) the the reason she asked was during our trip to the ramen place, there was a a little convenience store, Kambini, as they call it. It was a family mart, I think. And these are are, just like convenience stores, but the Japanese do convenience stores at the next level. I mean, it's the convenience stores in Japan are not like they are in the United States, let's say. <laughs> it's more like a bodega, but a, a like super optimized, super, I, I don't know. It's like the Japanese bodega maybe or something like that. It, it's just, it's got its own, its own character. Uh, sure. Like for example, you can have your luggage stored or shipped to another town 
through the convenies and they, they offer all sorts of services. Uh, so, so it's like kind of a one-stop shop wow. and they're all over the place. And so I love the convenies. And, and so I walked into the convenie while the film crew was waiting. I had been telling them, I think, about this candy I really like called Poiful. And actually, I just ate the last box of Poiful just before the, just before the show. <laughs> but so anyway, so I come out and I've got uh, a bag full of stuff and they don't know what it is. But I pull out a bag of Poiful candy for each of the members of the, of the crew, including the cameraman. So there's kind of the bag in his face. And the Japanese lady thought that I must be kind because I thought about buying candy for the film crew. Oh, that's so nice. And, and when, when the clip aired, uh, there's a very famous comedy duo called Banana Man. It's actually two people. And one guy has this bowl haircut and you know, one guy's kind of like heavy set and he's got a bowl haircut and the other guy's like stick thin. And you know, apparently they're friends <laughs> from long ago. They, they, they do commentary on the clip. And so they thought that was really funny. Uh, but the thing that they thought was funniest by far was when I tried to eat the ramen, which I was not trying to be humorous at all. Everything else I was hamming <laughs> up, right? It was just like me having a good time. And then I just went to eat the ramen. And as they pointed out, which they do have video evidence, I hadn't really <laughs> thought about it, but I eat ramen one noodle at a time. And so the whole thing about a ramen place is it's supposed to be super high throughput, right? Like you're, you right. get in there, you eat your ramen, you're out in five minutes, right? It, it, it took me 30 minutes to eat one bowl of ramen. And then I asked for more noodles. So it took another 30 minutes. So it took me an hour, hour to eat, you know, two bowls of ramen. I, I mean, in your defense, you traveled thousands of miles for that bowl well, of ramen. That's you know. true. That's true. <laughs> So, so anyway, that was, that was great fun. I had a bunch of other adventures and so then, you know, COVID happened. And so obviously I did not go back to visit. Right. And, and then a couple of months ago, the, I got an email from TV Tokyo and they said, you know, we want to re-air your clip. And, awesome. and it's like, oh, okay, well, great. And I thought maybe it's because of COVID people aren't visiting. So it's hard for them to film new clips. I was like, oh yeah, they'd be great. And I said, oh, well, you know, how have you been, you know, tending to your ramen cravings, right? And I thought, oh, I better, I better come up with something. So I ordered ramen from a Japanese ramen chain in the United States, a very good one actually, and got a ramen kit and made the ramen. And then my mom filmed me eating the ramen and then gave that to TV Tokyo. And then they of course started asking, oh, did you make your own vegan ramen? And I was like, uh-oh. Well, uh -oh. <laughs> I had to admit that this was a competitor's ramen because this, this chain actually has stores in Japan. I'm like, uh-oh, I just ate the competitor's ramen. They're going to show that. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible person. So so I, I wrote back to the to TV Tokyo and I said, you know, I, I apologize. You know, I, I really don't feel that I'm being loyal to my Kyushu Jungara ramen. So I tell you what. I'll tell you what, I will pay you to ship, because I didn't know about ramen kits until I ordered this, right? So, okay, maybe oh, wow. you'll get a ramen kit from Kyushu Junkara. And I said, okay, I will pay you up to $1,000 US to go to Akihabara, get a ramen kit, you know, you know, get get them to, to give you the ingredients, and then ship it on dry ice overnight, and then I'll film myself making it and eating it, right? And I figured this would get their attention because they like kind of really bizarre things. And, you know, I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll have to pay a thousand bucks, but I don't, I don't think it costs that much. And, and also, I don't think I'll have to pay for it. I think they probably will, but I would if, if I had to, right? I wanted adventure here because I really miss Japan. So, so I didn't hear anything back. I was like, wow, maybe I'm even too weird for this Japanese show. <laughs> but of course I wasn't. So, so I get an email back a couple of days later saying the director wants to do a Zoom call with you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's more like it. I'm going to get my own Japanese TV show out of this <laughs> By the time I'm done. So um, so we had the Zoom call scheduled for 2 p.m. on Saturday. Okay. And that should have been my first thing because that's 3 a.m. in Tokyo. It was like, oh, wow. so they're going to do a call at 3 a.m. And, and then, you know, they were going to have like the whole crew there to do this call. I was like, wow, that's hardcore. And I had just moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's where I live right now. Mm -hmm. and, and so I got a new apartment. I, you know, it was furnished, but it, I sort of didn't know where anything was, hadn't cooked in it. You know, I just had this new apartment. I told them about it. I got this new apartment. And so I did the Zoom call, one of my first Zoom calls since moving in. And it 
It was great. It was the same director who had filmed me in 2019. And I had a surprise planned. I was going to have a special delivery of, of some ramen-ish things from DoorDash. And it was running late. And it's like, uh-oh. And so <laughs> during the call, they're having technical difficulties and seem kind of distracted. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not being entertaining enough. <laughs> I don't know. This is about, <laughs> I don't know if they're going to plan to show this on TV or what. And then I hear a knock on my door. Oh, boy. Uh, and then I remembered that my doorbell was broken. Okay. The doorbell in my new place wasn't working. Oh, boy. And so I go out and I think it's got to be DoorDash, right? And it's a Japanese TV crew. <laughs> <laughs> that is and phenomenal. So, yeah. So they've got a camera and then they have this big wooden crate with 30 meals worth of ramen shipped from Japan from Kyushu Junkara Ramen, prepared by the owner. <laughs> oh my God, that <laughs> is <restaurant>. amazing. <laughs> and they brought me the my favorite drink and they brought me two boxes of the Poiful candy, right? Wow. And so that, the Poiful candy I just finished eating was actually from that care package they sent me. They shipped all this over from Japan. And so they, I was shocked. I, I, I mean, I, I knew they're going to do something, but I, you know, I didn't think that. Right. And so they came in and they filmed me making ramen, which was amazing because, you know, I had a furnished apartment and I hadn't cooked. I had no idea what was there. So I'm looking around and I'm like, we have to boil water. How do you do that? Oh, you need a pot, I think. And, you know, I found like a lobster pot or something. I mean, it, it, it was really uh, kind of a mess, but. I was trying to figure out how to use the oven or the stove and stuff. But anyway, I made it and they, they instructed me on how to make it. And it turned out great. I still have a bunch in my freezer. It turns out even, even after it's frozen, it tastes amazing. So I've been making ramen dinners for friends. It was fantastic. They had a, a video from the owner of the, oh, wow. of, of this, you know, personally uh, giving me greetings and all that. And I filmed, I filmed the message for him. And it was, it was fantastic. So that, that aired recently and, and the, the name of that show, they didn't tell me the show that they were making. I thought they were just going to rerun it. Right. Well, right. they were filming a special, the special episode was, I think the translation in the English was something like boys who are obsessed with things. <laughs> that, was, that was the name oh, of the wow, episode. Awesome. And, and they had a bunch of clips or uh, you know, a bunch of segments. And the segment before me was for a Grammy award-winning artist who was visiting Japan. That was two minutes long. And then mine was 20 minutes long. <laughs> so, is awesome. yeah. Yours sounds a little more fun. I got to be honest. This, this is just like, it's so improbable. It is. Um, it, just... it is. And, and to my knowledge, I mean, so that show is very famous. A lot of people in Japan know it. And, and they will follow people around Japan on their adventures. But this is the first time I've heard of them you know, doing, doing something outside of Japan. <laughs> right. Following you to the States yeah. and uh, watching, right. teaching you how to cook ramen in your, in your new apartment. That is so cool. Uh, so we're definitely so, going to get links to these. You got to send me links to these well, episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is where it gets tricky because TV oh, Tokyo okay. technically will mm. not allow their clips to be shown. Oh, in the United States. However, oh. if you were to talk to me very nicely, if you were a close friend who talked to me, well, okay, maybe something a private showing might be arranged. Oh, very well. <laughs> so, it's Christmas come early, maybe. That's uh, right. That's right. Fun. So, so fun. now I'm very excited to go back to Japan. Oh, oh, they also sent me all the swag, right? So they, they said I've got, I've got the Kyushu Jungara ramen ramen bowl, like the actual bowl that they use in the store. You can't buy this. They, they sent me a bandana and a, a fan oh, to like fan myself. And then, you know, this big wooden crate that they use to, for the, the ramen noodles. I've got that. And so, you know, I'm the only person in the world, as far as I know, who has all these things who doesn't work at Kyushu Jungara Ramen. So. That is incredible. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I am. I am so glad we got into this. So. Actually, I'm going to pivot a little bit because you mentioned something earlier that, you know, kind of coincidentally, I, I stumbled across. But you were in Nara and mm. I guess for for ICFP and I guess you were were you presenting a paper on 
Mini Adapton. Is that right? Did I get that right? Oh, yeah. The uh, Scheme Workshop. Scheme Workshop was in NARA. And uh, yes, and so I had written that paper with two other people. And so I ended up presenting it because the student who was going to present it, his flight got delayed. So yeah, that's Same. right. So that was, that was kind of a bummer. I was hoping the student would be able to do it. But yeah, so, so that was going to be Dakota Fisher was going to present that. But, you know, that, that's what happens when you're traveling to Japan. It's, you know, there's a good chance that it, may, it might be a little late. Yeah, so that, that, was, that was sort of my first foray into incremental computation, incremental adaptive computation. And, you know, for the listeners who haven't read the paper yet, I'm still working through it. In fact, I'm about halfway through the paper and this was all like novel stuff for me. So tell us a little bit about, you know, motivate the problem that Mindy Adapton solves and maybe the prior art that inspired it and, you know, sort of what incremental computation or self-adjusting computation is all about. Well, I mean, if it really solved the problem, it wouldn't be a scheme workshop, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. It would have ICFT or Popol or something. I mean, you know, I think Scheme Workshop has had some really good papers, so I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to give the wrong one. But, but you know, there, there's a reason in this case. I think it was at Scheme Workshop, so it really was preliminary work, and the idea was to try to do. Okay, uh, let's take a step back. So, you know, the, the Mini Kenrin family of languages I work on really got started in, in work that Dan Friedman had been doing for a long time because he wanted to have his own kind of prologue-like language, but of course he wanted it in a Lisp and particularly Scheme. And he wanted it for experimentation and hacking and also wanted it for teaching. And he didn't particularly like some of the decisions Prolog made. And so, so he had created a number of languages over the years and had homework assignments for the students at Indiana University. And someone, okay, so, so you remember Lambda the Ultimate, if you, you know, that used to be super oh, sure. popular. I think it's other venues have, have kind of taken over in popularity, but that was the place for, to learn about functional programming for a while. And, you know, so someone posted Dan's like class notes and exercise or whatever, uh, having to do with logic programming to Lambda the Ultimate. And then Oleg Kisilyov, who's expert in, in both functional and logic programming, you know, wrote to Dan some epic email saying, you know, this is kind of interesting, but, you know, have you considered this and this and this and this? <laughs> and so they started working together. And then as a result, the, the product of, of their work together was something called Kanren. Kanren is a Japanese word that basically means relation. So Kanren came out of that. And Kanren was sort of like prologue in some sense, embedded. It was very prologue inspired as, as like a, an embedded domain specific language in Scheme, using a bunch of Scheme macros and some functions and so forth. And it used sort of like a prologue style pattern matching and also had some optimizations that were kind of like prologue. It was, you know, quite fast and has some really cool ideas in it. From a teaching standpoint, I think it was less successful because the implementation was pretty long and involves some fairly serious macro usage. You know, if you didn't know Prolog, it didn't make much sense, or at least I found that to be the case. I didn't know Prolog and so, and I didn't really know macros. So I found it really hard to follow. And so I was a new PhD student when, when Dan was testing this stuff out. On the students, and I told Dan, like, I just don't, I'm, I'm having real trouble with this. But you've been showing lots of little interpreters in the class. Uh, this class called 521 or 311 was the undergrad version at IU, very famous course that Dan's taught for a long time. I said, you know, what if you wrote an interpreter for this language, you know, instead of having this big you know, set of hairy macros and, you know, made it as simple as possible? And so Dan did something like that. He didn't do what I suggested. Instead of writing an interpreter, he wrote another set of macros and, and functions, but it was for a much smaller set of languages. It left out the optimizations and, and was lower level. And that wow. is what became Mini Canron. And so we massaged Mini Canron in various ways over, over years, uh, but that was really the beginning of Mini Canron. That was the first Mini Canron. And that turned out to be much more successful, at least once we had polished it for teaching and for also for experimentation because it was, it was much shorter and then could be understood uh, a lot easier. And then Jason Heeman, who was Dan's PhD student after I was, came along and said, you know, this could be made even simpler. And, and he worked with Dan on a system that's called MicroCanron. And so MicroCanron really is extremely simple 
and only has a binary disjunction or binary conjunction or and two argument unification, which is like a type of equality, and and then the ability to make a recursive calls, and that's about it. The ability to introduce like a new variable, you know, those sorts of things. So this is like very, very spare language, and it's only about 50 lines of code to implement it. And so that became really popular. And, and now hundreds of people have implemented micro cameras. So that's like the standard exercise we give to people when they want to learn relational programming. We have them implement a micro camera in a language of their choice. And by doing so, they understand things that like the search and the streams and unification and all, all those sorts of things. So it's turned out to be very helpful in communicating these ideas. So the idea of, of mini adapton was to do something like a mini canron or a micro canron for the adapton system. So there's a system called adapton. Matt Hammer has, has worked on adapton. I think that came out of his dissertation work. And the idea is to have a system that supports incremental or adaptive computation where, you know, the idea is that you can have some of the inputs change, but you don't have to rerun the entire computation from scratch. You can sort of incrementally update things, sort of like an incremental compiler. You can, you know, if one character changes in one file and one module and an incremental compiler, you don't have to recompile the whole program, at least not all the time, right? So you can do just like, you know, be a little smarter and try to figure out what is the least amount of work necessary to recalculate the answer. That's the idea. So, you know, Adapton is like a, a language or framework for, for exploring and implementing those sorts of ideas, but it's pretty complicated. And so what I had suggested as a possible collaboration was, well, what, what if we did something sort of, you know, philosophically more like mini Canron or micro Canron is to Canron, we could do that with Adapton. Like, what if we come up with a simpler embedding or simpler version of it. I shouldn't even say embedding necessarily, but what if we come up with, with a, a much smaller version of it that's short enough for someone to read it, read the code and understand it and to play around with it? You know, so if nothing else, it'd be a good teaching vehicle or maybe beginning for, for people to modify it and hacking and so forth, right? And so that was the inspiration. That's why it's called Mini, Mini Adapton. Mm. Is it called mini or micro? I forget. There's so there you there were both presented in the paper that you had micro, okay. which was the small version, and then mini built on top of it. Okay, that's right, and that's exactly what what micro Canron does. You can build mini Canron right. on top of micro Canron with some macros. Okay, so you can see we we basically just copied what what Jason and Dan did. That was you know that was the inspiration is what what Jason and Dan did to try to simplify things. And so this was you know a first attempt at trying to do that. It was only a partial success. You know, in mm. hindsight, I think it's possible to do. And this was one attempt at it. And I would like to go back and revisit it. But it these things take time to refine. Sure. I mean, it took it took like many years to come up with exactly the right version of mini Cameron. And it's not like there's only one right version, but but what I mean is uh, if you look at the very earliest mini Camerons. They were actually really complicated in terms of their interface and implementation. And we learned over a number of years how we could simplify things and, and leave lines of code out or generalize operations so that the user the user didn't have to choose between as much of an example as in the original, well, I shouldn't say original, but the mini Kenron in the first edition of the Reason Schemer has two versions of unification, two versions of disjunction, and two versions of conjunction. And what that means is if you have a program that has a single unification, a single conjunction, and a single disjunction, that's already eight possibilities for writing that one program. And so what we found was that the poor, poor, poor students, mostly Indiana University students, who are trying to program this language were sort of paralyzed by decisions. Well, which one do I make? You know, which one do I use? And what exactly is the difference? And it, and it got very confusing. And the way we ultimately solved it was to throw out one version of unification, one version of conjunction, and one version of disjunction. So only have one of each. It turned mm. out that, that that we were, you know, sort of prematurely optimizing in some ways. And so, so this was us trying to be prologue in some sense that in order to get good performance and in some case expressivity, we decided to have multiple versions of operations. And in fact, in some sense, we had like four versions of disjunction and conjunction. 
because um, we had special non-relational versions as well. And it got very, very confusing. And so we just made the radical design decision to throw everything out except one, one of each that was the most general and the most relational, that was sort of the most logically pure one. And surprisingly enough, we've been able to get away with that for the most part. What, what it means is that you have to do things like introduce other constraints other than unification. Well, we sort of figured that out over time. But you know, that was an example where we ended up radically simplifying the language interface and implementation, made it much easier to understand and use, and made the code way shorter. But that took, I don't know, it probably took at least five years from the original version. So the, the thing, I guess my point is with the mini and micro adapton, it didn't go through that five-year process, right? So this is right. sort of like the first attempt. And what would have to happen, I think, to really make it a mini and micro adapton is that people would have to keep working on it. You know, the main mm-hmm. thing is these things only get better if people actually work on it, right? And right. so for various reasons, no one's working on that right now, to my knowledge. Uh, certainly I'm not working on it. And no one works on it then it sort of gets abandoned. So, you know, academia is littered with abandoned beginnings. And so now, let me put it this way. If anyone wants to try working on that again, I'd be happy to to talk to them about it and explore whether or not that makes sense for them. You know, I I think it's still a fine research project. They'd probably have to be rethought, but you at least have a starting point. So, and it, it would probably take, it might take five or six rewritings of the system from scratch to figure out like a reasonable way to do it. Now that, that was that was like Dan, you know, Dan's education, you know, education under Dan when I get my PhD in computer science. Dan is has like infinite patience for those things. I remember with Mini Canron, there was a point in time where he thought he could remove one line of code. And he spent about two years thinking about how to remove one line of code. And eventually he, you know, he called me up at like, you know, 1 a.m. or something saying, I figured it out. <laughs> and I'm like, do you figure out Dan's like, I know how to remove that line. Right. And, and he told me how to remove it and I removed it and it worked and he was so happy. And then a year later, I, I think Jason Heeman convinced him to add it back. <laughs> I don't know how long it took, but you know, he's like, yeah, it's got to go back in. And so, you know, that, that's the way Dan thinks. He's happy to spend two years thinking about how to remove one line of code because he wants every line of code to matter and communicate, mm-hmm. you know, something. And, and, and there's some math behind each line, line of code. And so it shouldn't be there if it's not absolutely needed, right? And so... That's the way he looks at it. And so when you have a 50-line implementation of a complete logic programming system, you don't have any room for extra cruft. Right. So so many many and micro adapton are very far from that ideal at this point. So, but you know, that would be a fine problem because you know there isn't something like this. If someone just wants to learn incremental or adaptive computation, there isn't like a micro version of something they can implement in 50 lines of code to understand everything, to my knowledge. Maybe, maybe someone's done that since then, but but that, that was the intent. The intent was that if someone wanted to get up to speed on this topic, they could read that paper, implement that system, and then start going off and reading research papers, and they would have some some ability then to start, you know, something to hang on to, and to start, something to start playing around with and hacking. Right. Really cool. So there was, um, you know, I was looking through some other papers of of yours and of Dan's. And I stumbled across another one that I wanted to ask you about as well. Stick with the theme here. Also work that was inspired by Dan, I think back in 19, also in the 70s. Rich Hickey constantly reminds us that like most good ideas had their start in the 70s. So yep. it, it was uh, or, or the, the 60s yeah. or, or yeah. earlier, like Lambda Calculus as the 30s. Yeah. And then... Which you taught me on the back of a napkin in a bar once. Which that's, that's another story I like to tell. <laughs> but uh, there's this tech report number 72 on applicative multiprogramming that Dan mm-hmm. wrote with David Wise. Yeah. And I saw it, you know, which talks about ferns and fronds and. A couple of years later, I would say, you did some work on a shallow embedding of bottom avoiding streams. We sort of revisited some of these ideas. So can you, you know, maybe give us a little background on what is a fern and, you know, what are bottom avoiding, what bottom are are they avoiding and, you know, Mm. the ordering and uh, engines and just sort of riff there for a minute. I I found this stuff also to be, and I I have to add, I'm going to pay you a compliment. Like 
I find your papers to be like really approachable. Uh, so I would encourage listeners that haven't had a chance to go read some of these papers to go read them. They're, they sound a lot scarier when you just read the title, but they're actually really approachable. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I, you know, Dan and I have a shared sense there for the most yeah. part of that. You know, Dan and I both worked as middle school teachers, although, although my career, I think, was longer than Dan's. And, and actually, I have a degree in special education. I was a special ed teacher for a while. And so, you know, the, the idea of trying to break complicated ideas down to something simple is, has always been important to me. And, and the, also the idea is that, you know, I get very frustrated trying to learn things. And I get very frustrated by jargon and so forth. And so, so uh, one of the great one of the great innovations that Dan has, one of his great contributions to computing, has been the little series of books, like the Little Schemer and Little mm-hmm. Lisper before that, and things like that. And and so you know these are all written in Socratic dialogue fashion. And and he had a rule. He has a set of rules, like which will remain secret. <laughs> but 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 one of his rules is that for for a book like the Little Schemer. A bright high school student should be able to read it. Okay. You shouldn't have to know anything. And, and also another rule is that there's nothing in there. If you re- if you look at the little schemer, there's nothing in there about computers. Yeah. There's nothing. And, and if you look at the cover art on the different little books, everything is from the 1930s because that's when Lambda Calculus was invented. So there's no mention of computers or operating systems or editors or any of that stuff, right? Computers don't exist when those books were written metaphorically. Right. But you can talk about our expressions and values and things like that. And, you know, I think he really succeeded in pulling that off in terms of writing in a style that a bright high school student could understand. And, you know, Richard Feynman had advice for someone writing a, a dissertation, like a PhD thesis or whatever. He, say, he said that you should write for yourself when you first began your studies, smart but ignorant. You know, so mm-hmm. ignorant it has nothing to do with smart. You know, someone can be smart but ignorant. They just don't know anything about the topic yet. But smart means that you know they're they're able to learn. And so that's really the the way Dan writes those little books is for an audience that's smart but ignorant. And and that's also the way I try to write my papers. You know, I, I think uh, the 2017 pearl on relational interpreters and synthesis mm-hmm. that to me is probably the cleanest paper I've written. In, with my co-authors in that style. Mm -hmm. Basically, after the paper was accepted, I spent a month rewriting that paper over and over again to try to make it as accessible as possible. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, a lot of people would say that that doesn't make sense and maybe career-wise it doesn't, but to me it's very, very important that those ideas are as understandable for, you know, to to anyone who cares about them because I think they're really beautiful. I don't know, that's why I do it, right? Like if if, if I'm not going to make my ideas understandable, like why... Why investigate? So, so anyway, so, so for the, the, the fern stuff, <laughs> okay. Hmm. Fern, ferns reminds me a little bit of a mini Dapton and then that, you know, it's like, this is something that's been kind of abandoned and, and I think it's been abandoned twice actually. So, so there was the work on firm ferns by, by Dan and, and David Weiss, as you point out from the seventies. And Dan actually is co-author of a book on parallel and concurrent programming or whatever. But when I was Dan's grad student, he would tell me about things that he had done in the past, things like ferns, right? I just like learned about all these things um, and would hear about them. And then, you know, Dan had a feshrift is like, you know, an academic celebration. That's right. His 60th Boy. birthday, there was a big celebration at Indiana University. And I was a, a relatively new grad student. Then. I think I had sort of just been his student for like a year or two. And so all, you know, it, it was like a who's who of people in that space. So you had Jerry Sussman there and, and Guy Steele. So the two co-creators of Scheme, which yep. is a language in which Dan works. And, you know, a whole whole bunch of, of high-powered people and, and, and fun and interesting people to talk to. You know, the Hofstadter was there. And, you know, just a whole bunch of people, a bunch of his former students. And so anyway, Guy Steele gave the keynote. And the keynote, by the way, I, Dan had this recorded, and I've uploaded all the videos to YouTube. Your YouTube channel, yeah, yeah, they're on my YouTube channel, and just trying to trying to keep them up for posterity. I mean, really, I need to upload them to like Internet Archive or something. But anyway, they're they're on YouTube, and so if you find you know if you're if you're interested in this, I highly recommend this talk by by Guy Steele. I also really like Jerry's talk. There's a bunch yeah. of very interesting talks. So you know, Kent David gave a great talk on them the macro writers, Bill of Rights, and things like that. A lot of really interesting talks. But one, one of the, the best talks was the keynote by Guy Steele. And, and it was called something like Dan Friedman, Cool Ideas. 
Yeah. And, and it was just on a bunch of ideas that Dan had had over the years that Guy Steele, some, some of them were, were ideas that Guy Steele thought just hadn't had as much influence as they should have. And one of the mm. ideas he talked about was ferns and fronds and all this stuff. And so he thought that that was a, something worth taking another look at. And so that, that was what this paper we wrote. So this paper was with Joan Neer and Ramana Kumar, I believe. And so the four of us did some research and wrote a paper. And Ramana is now at, he's at DeepMind. And Joe uh, Neer is a professor of computer science. So they've done very well, both of them. And, and I still keep in touch with them. It's a lot of fun to, to meet people like that and have conversations with them. But one of the things we... Did was just had to look at the fern stuff again. And, and in particular, we wanted to think about whether or not the ideas of these ferns could be tied into logic programming and many can run and search. And now I haven't looked at this for a long time. So mm. I'm, I'm trying to uh, to remember. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to say memory. something is, yeah, I, I want to say something is accurate and, and also pithy. So so how should I describe ferns? So, so the I guess the basic idea is that you have uh, uh, the fern structure can be thought of as like a list. Now I know closure people don't believe in lists, okay? But but lispers <laughs> believe in lists. Okay, and this thing called a list. That's what Lisp stands for: is list processing. Okay, so <laughs> all right, Sl- slight dig there. Just just because we had. We add a, a few extra data structures doesn't mean <laughs> we don't revere the list as well. But all right, go ahead, continue. Yeah, so, well, so this is us being closure-like in a sense, right? Because like instead sure. of just using lists, we're going to have this other data structure. So instead of cons, which is list constructor, that's what cons stands for, is constructor. So cons creates a cons pair. You can cons onto a list. Um, instead of cons, we're going to have a different type of list that has a constructor called fronds. So we can frons something onto a list instead of consing it onto a list. And the things that we can frons onto the list are computations. Okay. So instead of instead of consing a value onto the list, we can frons a computation onto a fern. Or is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, fern. Yeah. It's been, it's been so long. I need to rewrite that paper. Yeah, you're 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 recalling pretty well. <laughs> okay. And you know, okay, so what does it mean to have a computation? Well, you can delay a computation by taking an expression you want to evaluate and wrapping a lambda around it. Lambda delays evaluation. And then you supply that resulting procedure or thunk or whatever later. Mm-hmm. And that will force the evaluation of the expression. So that's one way to do it. And, and scheme has things like delay and force. Mm-hmm. Or, or you can think about lazy evaluation in languages like Haskell. Or you know, there's, there's call by value, which most languages use including Scheme and, and Java, but there's also call by name and call by need. Right. So it's like lazy forms of evaluation. But anyway, there are lots of ways that you can delay evaluation. In fact, these lazy streams, one of the pioneering papers was by Dan and, and, and David Wise in 1976 called Khan Should Not Evaluate its Arguments. Right. It's all about lazy streams, okay? Not the first paper on streams, but it was sort of the, the paper that made streams more mainstream. Okay, is a Mitch Wan says uh, the the person who gets credit for an idea isn't the person who invents it; it's the person who explains it in such a way that it doesn't have to be reinvented again. And so that that, <laughs> that Khan should not evaluate his arguments paper in many ways was like the paper that made it so that people didn't have to reinvent the concept again. So anyway, so so streams and laziness was something Dan and, and and David were very much thinking about, and the idea of these ferns ties into laziness and delaying computation and streams and so forth. So the idea is that we have like a, basically a list structure where the elements of those frond cells are computations that haven't yet been run. And now what we can do is if we have a bunch of these computations, we can start evaluating, you know, sort of small step. You get, you could think of it sort of like giving time slices to each of the computation. So the first fern cell, the first frond cell, we can take that computation and run it a little bit, see if we get a value back or no, still like as you know, still still has more work to do. Okay, move on to the next one, give that one a little bit of work and so forth. So it's kind of like a you know a time sharing operating system that's mm. you know letting each process run a little bit to see if it's going to finish and give a result. But it's in the form of a data structure form of the spurn, which is kind of like a list containing computations. And once a value is produced, if it is by one of the computations, 
then what happens is that value gets promoted to the front of the fern and sort of turned into an actual cons pair. Okay. And so this is a like smart, it's like a smart list where when you start taking cars and cutters, it forces evaluation, but in like an operating system, it's like the, it's like the uh, list itself has its own operating system Mm -hmm. with multi-processing or something like that. I mean, it's really sequential, but it could be implemented with multi-processing. So, I mean, underneath the hood, you actually could have multiple threads, one thread per front cell, right? And you could actually be running it in parallel on hardware and stuff like that. And then as, as the computations finish, if they do, the values get promoted to the front of the list and it actually becomes, you know, sort of instantiated to an actual list. You can take cars and cutters up. And otherwise, if something diverges, if you have a computation that runs forever, it will just, well, it's fine. just won't produce anything. So you have this... You're sort of, you know, self-adjusting in some sense, you know, list structure that has some of the aspects of a stream, some of the aspects of, of a regular list, some of the aspects of a search, some of the aspects of an operating system. They're all kind of combined into one unusual data structure. And so the idea was, well, maybe we can build a mini Canron using this data structure where instead of the interleaving search, we can just use a fern and, and use fronds. And then have that data structure do all the computation and interleaving search or whatever. And then, you know, kind of push everything down onto that data structure. And then, you know, if you implement that data structure or have a high quality implementation of the data structure, it should be trivial to do things like logic programming. That was the idea of that paper. And I still think it's an interesting idea. There's sort of two things that happened. One is the mm-hmm. paper never got published. It sort of <laughs> it sort of ended up in publishing limbo where... Mm. It, it's sort of in a, an undead state where I, I, I need to see if I can rescue it. You know, it was going to be published somewhere and, and it sort of didn't happen. And so because of that, I haven't, I should probably just, just go ahead and, and get permission to resubmit it somewhere else. And then also, you know, just like with the mini Adapton, although maybe not quite to the same extent, I don't feel like we ever got to the point where it was something I would really want to use. Uh, you know, I think we need to do more more work to, and and I, I suffer from Indiana University itis, which is mm. the, the IU ethos. What when I was there was you really wanted to make things work really well before you'd write a paper on it, and th- this is not the standard ethos of academic publishing today. It's like, In twenty twenty one. Yeah, it's like get as many papers out as you can, right? And so so that was one where. You know, okay, I thought that was interesting preliminary work. I do think there's something there and I want to revisit it. But but the other thing is until it would actually appear in print, it seemed weird to write another paper on it, given that this one hasn't been published. That's happened before. There are times where people have, have written follow-up papers on papers that were never published. <laughs> so that'd be, hmm. well, that'd be a possibility, right? But that, that was, yeah, I, I actually think that idea would is worth a lot more exploration. I think it's a cool idea and a cool data structure. That's cool. Uh, something to pay more attention to. What other cool ideas are out there that maybe you have in your back pocket or something you've been meaning meaning to uh, explore and haven't yet found the time, but uh, you think is pretty cool and would like to find the time for? Oh, oh there's so many. Well, wh- one thing I'd be interested in is what I like to call lattice-oriented programming. I mean, maybe I'm just not interested in it enough because I'm not doing it. Okay. Like if I were really, really interested, I would have done it by now probably. But I keep having this idea. So if, when you investigate different areas of computation, like abstract interpretation, distributed programming, logic programming, you often find that you're operating, you're performing certain operations over mathematical lattices where you have meet and join as operations. And it's like, there's there are a lot of operations and a lot of uh, computer science where uh, the underlying data structures theoretically is a lattice, not really a tree or a graph in a general sense. It's a, it's a, it's a more specialized data structure. And, and so for example, in 1970, both Reynolds and Plotkin showed that unification, like in Prolog or Minicanron, can be viewed as operations over a lattice. And, and as soon as you see it that way, I figured this out when I took uh, Amr Sabri's class at Indiana types. Once I understood what a lattice was, I realized that unification was operation over lattices mm-hmm. and that 
if you can go up with unification, you also has to be, have, you know, must be something when you go down and it turns out there is, there's an operation called anti-unification, which is the dual of unification, just meaning it's sort of like the opposite. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, if one operation goes up in the lattice, then if you can also go down, which you can, there must be an operation that goes down. And if you sort of trust the math or trust the logic, which usually doesn't lead you wrong, you can imagine an operation that's the opposite of unification. So, so that's one reason it's useful to think in lattices. And so there is this operation called anti-unification, which has been lo- known for a long time, and it's used in things like case-based reasoning and stuff like that. But in any case, if you look at abstract interpretation, distributed programming, logic programming, many, many other areas of computing, you see lattices are everywhere, but they're not really first-class entities. In, in many places. There have been a few attempts to try to make lattices sort of first class, but nothing that I that I like. And these algorithms over lattices tend to be like really awkward to implement or really hard to optimize and things like that. They're like pretty awkward uh, and annoying to write. And you have fixed points over lattices and you know the tree automata involve lattices and fixed points and all these things. Semantics of logic programming are fixed points over lattices. And, you know, it starts getting a little nasty. And, and after a while, if you've implemented a few of these systems, they kind of feel like you're doing the same thing over and over again. So you get this area where it's like very powerful, very powerful. It's very general. You can apply fixed points over lattices and operations over lattices to many types of computation. It's not well known. Like if you're not an academic computer scientist, you probably don't think in terms of fixed points over lattices for computation. But I think right. it's so general that maybe you could, right? And so what I would like to do is create a, a programming language where the fundamental operation are things like fixed, finding fixed points over lattices and you and lattices are first class and you can have parameterized lattices and try to do all programming. What would happen if every program you wrote had to be expressed in terms of lattice operations and fixed points over lattices or meets and joins and all that? I don't know what would happen, but I think it'd be interesting. It would probably lead to, to some new insights or to... You know, you know it's a, once again, that's the sort of thing that doesn't make sense to study, to do it for a weekend, right? But but if right. you're willing to put five years into it, you know, probably something interesting comes out of it. So that's one thing I would. And then the other thing I want to do is, I've got a zillion ideas. Uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to give away my ideas, but nothing precious here. You know, as, as Howard Aiken says, you know, don't, don't be afraid of people stealing your ideas. If they're any good, you'll have to ram them down people's throats. And that's been, that's yeah. exactly been my experience. But another thing I want to build right now is this is something I am going to try. I want to build a, a, a user interface, like an editor that mirrors the way I actually program because nothing like it exists that I've seen. So, so the way I learned to program under Dan is if I'm programming a scheme, the, the way I program is through doing uh, program transformations. So, uh, you know, I might write a, a simple scheme interpreter, uh, interpreter for scheme environment passing interpreter, and then I might do a program transformation like adding a store, adding an argument in store passing style. And then I might transform the code to be in continuation passing style or a normal form. And then I might defunctionalize the code with respect to continuations and procedures. And then I might trampoline it or registerize it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different transformations you can make. And basically, you massage the program to get the properties you want and the behavior you want. This is one of the things that, that Dan teaches his students. A very powerful set of techniques that are not they're not really used by most programmers. And you know, one of the problems is by the time you ended up with the trampoline, registerized, defunctionalized CPS code, it's like almost impossible to read or modify. So it's a very powerful, you know, basically you're hand compiling things. You're doing the sorts of things a compiler might do, but it's a very powerful set of techniques. And, and often, you know, if you're really adept at it, you can move very quickly. So what I want to do is have an editor, first of all, that supports all those transformations. But secondly, where I can see the different stages of transformation simultaneously, and I can edit the code in any one of those individual steps where it makes sense, and then have all the changes propagate through. So I should be able to go back to one stage where it hasn't been defunctionalized yet, make a change to the code, and have that propagate both forward and backward to the Mm -hmm. original direct style code and also to the, the final code. Or the editor should say, you know, I don't know how to do that. Give me a hint. Or should say that's illegal. And here's why. That's just like such a different way of programming and thinking about programming and editing than I've ever seen before outside of Indiana. 
or a few academic circles that I think it'd be really cool to build this. I've been thinking about this, building this editor for about 12 or 13 years now. And it's like, I'm just going to do it and I'll show it to people and it's, it'll be weird, but that's, that's actually how I think about programming. It'd be interesting to see if, if that resonates with anyone else or inspires people. But that's the editor I actually need and, and nothing like it exists. It seems to me, so you had an, another editor project that I've seen you demo. Uh, uh, Barlaman? Barlaman. Yeah. And it, it seems like, I mean, if you squint, like you might have started exploring at least some of the implementation ideas there, although it maybe had a different purpose. Um, it had a different purpose, but, but you know, that's a really good insight. So it, it occurs to me that this process of being able to say in a certain in a certain slice of all the possible transformations that I want to replace some code by something else and have it propagate through both ways, that that may be best done relationally using mm-hmm. something like Barlamin as an infrastructure. Probably have to be modified, but building Barlamin has made me think about that in a more serious way. And there's this whole thing called bidirectional programming, which is about, you know, you sort of, you, you show how to transform code from one direction to another, and then the system figures out how to do it the other way. And this, this is related to like the view update problem in mm. databases. Uh, relational programming sort of takes that a step further, maybe too far, arguably, because it makes it a harder problem. But you could also view, the, you know, view, <laughs> you could also envision the type of editor and, and programming style that I'm talking about as sort of like a, a super version of bidirectional or indimensional or directional programming, which maybe is generalized to relational programming. So, I mean, it's hard to explain this. I, it'd be a lot easier to show you. So that's, that's one of the reasons I, you know, when I do build a prototype or design something, it's usually because it's so hard to explain to someone, but if I can right. show you it working, then, then you'll get a, a, an understanding. Very cool. Yeah, I would look forward to that. Definitely. So, and, you know, I guess another thing that we'll have to do. So I'm going to take you up on that. I I took that when you said you there, I didn't, I took it as the personal you and not like everybody that's listening to this. You're now on the hook to show me that if and when you you get around to building it. Sure. We'll have a I'll game. I'll probably of the build it quickly. I mean, I, I can actually build these things very quickly, like a crude version. Yeah. So I'll probably build it, build it soon. Cool. Yeah. We'll have to play another game of atomic chess. For that. <laughs> that's right that's right it occurs to me that time has flown and we've been talking for it just over and, just over yeah. an hour but in sort fact, of before I'm, we... I'm supposed to, to to leave in a minute but i can hang on for a couple minutes all right well just uh, before you before we part ways let me ask you to share a piece of parting advice with the audience it's always so dangerous, right? Because there's without context, it's really hard to say anything. I'll, I'll share I'll share a piece of meta advice I really like, and th- this is something I read. So Olin Shivers, who's a schemer and computer scientist, at, uh, he's currently at Northeastern University. He wrote some notes on running the scheme workshop. I've been involved in scheme workshop for a long time, and so he wrote this very helpful set of notes saying, you know, you want to run the scheme workshop. Here are some things that you might have learned or you know you might benefit from having run it before. So you know, Olin's run it before. And so he talks about the things he's he's learned and so forth. But the best part was the meta advice. He says, before you read the specific advice, because there's advice on how to get the publications printed. I mean, sorry, the proceedings printed and stuff like that, right? There's a whole bunch of concrete advice. He said, before you read any of the advice, you should consider this. And this is like the meta advice. All of the advice given in this document is intended to give you the standard outcome, and it should be followed for things you don't care about, okay? So, for example, if you're happy to have the proceedings published in the standard way, well, then follow the standard advice and get the standard outcome, and you you probably won't mess it up too much, and it won't be any worse or better than usual, probably, if you do a competent job, right? So, so the point of that is you don't have to reinvent the process or you know, whatever from scratch, and you're probably not going to screw it up too much, and, and that'll be fine, okay? But then the meta advice goes on to say, however, if you have agreed to run the scheme workshop, it's presumably because you have an idea about how it should be run, about how something should be done differently. And when it comes to the things that you think should be done differently, you should not follow any of the advice below. 
because the advice below is for standard outcomes. And you do not want a standard outcome. You want to have a different outcome that's inherently non-standard, in which case you should do what you think is right. And I think this is just good advice in general, good meta advice in general, right? So that's... That I, 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 instead of advice, I'll give you meta advice, which is, you know, meta is better anyway from my perspective. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, I, I remember reading that and thinking this is this is wise. <laughs> this Absolutely. Is- Very cool. Well, that was epic. So, Will, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. It's always a good time and a pleasure talking to you. Always stimulating and always just a lot of fun. And I can't wait till we get to do it in person again. I know. I know. I miss hanging out. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right, my friend, take care and enjoy that ramen. We'll All see right. You. you too. We'll have to play some chess soon. Yes, <laughs> okay. sir. Bye-bye. Bye. For those of you out there, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Cognicast. Your host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney on Twitter. That's at C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-R-O-M-N-E-Y. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jared Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nasca at nascamusic.com. I'm Robert Randolph. Please stay safe and healthy out there. And thanks for listening to The Cognicast. Cast.